0: Happy to see you here. I'm Doug Fullington. I'm manager of audience education here at PNB. This is our fifth repertory program of the season and we have a triple bill. Two works are revivals for us, Alejandro Ceruto's Little Mortal Jump and Crystal Pite's Emergence. The second work on the program is new to us. It is Raku, choreographed by Yuri Pasikov. He is the resident choreographer at San Francisco Ballet. This work was made for them in 2011, and has been acquired by a few companies, and now by us. And that is our triple bill tonight, and I'll talk about The pieces in the order that we'll see them, and I'm very happy to answer any questions you have or have any discussion you'd like to have. I want to leave a little bit of time at the end, not only for questions, but I want to look ahead at a few things. We've got a tour to Paris coming up. We have a Jerome Robbins Festival that will open next season. I just want to say a few things about those events, but let's start off with Little Mortal Jump by Alejandro Ceruto. Now, Alejandro is resident choreographer at Hubbard Street Dance Chicago, a contemporary ballet company. They'll actually be in town next week. Is, is anyone gonna go see them? I'm gonna go see them. Uh, they're on the mini-series at uh, University of Washington Thursday, Friday, Saturday. They've got a program that includes, uh, oh dear, Siri is talking to me out of nowhere. Sorry for that. She said, it's nice to be right, <laughs> that's encouraging. <laughs> anyway, Hubbard Street's coming, and we're excited about that. It, doesn't co- it does coincide with our programming, but uh, a great company, and it's nice to have the relationship with Alejandro. He has made a number of works for Hubbard Street, Little Mortal Jump, which premiered there in 2012, was his tenth. Uh, they've recently done a retrospective of his work, um, and there's been some wonderful things written in the press, sort of chronicling his career, choreographic career, as well as his principles for choreographing. And we can see a lot of those in this work, Little Mortal Jump. How many of you saw it when when we acquired it a couple of seasons ago? Okay. It's, a, it's an eclectic work, both choreographically, uh, and musically as well. Uh, Alejandro is a fan of film music, and he also is a fan of drawing together a diverse playlist to create a uh, a ballet score. This reminds me of a number of Twyla Tharp works from the 90s, really I think coincided with the advent of the CD format, in which you could put together a playlist much easier than with a bunch of LPs. And there are a number of works by Twyla Tharp that have this eclectic uh, playlist, if you will, Water Baby Bagatelles, which is in our repertory, is one of those pieces, and likewise, Little Mortal Jump. Uh, We have names like Philip Glass, Max Richter, Alexander Desplat, uh, also Tom Waits, so you can see a diverse bunch. And likewise, the piece, for me, is is at once an intimate work, and at once a a large-scale work. And I remember when I first saw it, and it began with these short, almost vignettes, these duets in the front of the stage, in front of uh, these black boxes that serve as props throughout, and I thought, wow, this is really intimate, I wonder if it's better for a small theater, um, and then I was wrong, because as soon as that bit ended, the the whole stage opened up, and, and this there's this sort of juxtaposition of the full stage in this large house versus the intimacy of, of these numbers, and I think he uses the space so well. Um, There's an aspect, I think, of cabaret, or as our ballet master, uh, Otto Neubert, who's responsible for this work, suggested vaudeville, with some of these early numbers and as we move through the piece uh, a different feeling takes hold and it's a little hard to put into words but it's a much broader uh, spacious feel there's a sense of uh, endless time if you will and all of this is accomplished through the music through the choreography through the use of space and lighting and the props it's very much a full theatrical work and in fact I think that's what characterizes and connects all three of these works on the program as different as they are from each other they are very theatrical works that rely not only on the movement vocabulary but on all of the uh, elements of the theater, the lighting, the music, uh, other sounds, props, scenic elements, projections. Uh, We're going to visit all of those tonight and uh, in a way it asks a lot of us as an audience. This is a very sort of a very intense experience moving through this triple bill, but I think uh, Little Mortal Jump is a wonderful opener as we uh, move through from the intimacy of the opening numbers to the very spacious, almost epic feel uh, that uh, Ceruto achieves by the time he gets to the end of the work. So I'm going to leave that there with Little Mortal Jump, um, and we're going to then have our first intermission, and then we come to Raku, so Raku, as I said, is choreographed by Yuri Pasikov. He's a Russian dancer, a uh, principal dancer at San Francisco Ballet and now their resident choreographer and he choreographs elsewhere. He recently choreographed the full-length ballet about Rudolf Nureyev that had a, uh, its debut in Moscow. It was a very, um, it had a lot of Uh, opposition, there was a lot of political involvement, the premiere of the ballet was put off, it was in essence banned, and finally the premiere occurred uh, earlier this year, and if you follow ballet internationally, you can read about it in the press. Uh, He definitely is uh, pushing the envelope, if you will, with subject matter and how he likes ballets to be presented. I think he feels that ballet should should not be denied the uh, opportunity to delve into uh, intense and difficult subjects. Uh, Opera has done this for a long time, theater, literature, film, of course, and in a way ballet has too, we just might see a little less of it recently in the US, but I can think of 19th century examples, I can think of Uh, Fall River Legend, which was about the story of Lizzie Borden. Now that's a ballet. Uh, The works of Antony Tudor, which had such a psychological aspect to them. He was the British choreographer working at American Ballet Theatre for many years. Next year we'll see The Return of the Morris Pavan, which is a very intense and intimate reduction of the Othello story that's choreographed by Ho- José Limón, one of the late sort of, modernists. And here in Raku, we also have a, an intense narrative work. It's a piece of historical fiction that was developed by Yuri Passikov and his librettist Gary Wang and his composer Shinji Ashima, but it is based on, rooted in a true event, which was the 1950 burning of the Golden Pavilion in Kyoto. The temple was burned by a 22-year-old monk, who survived the burning was imprisoned and then released uh, due to his various mental illnesses, and then died very shortly thereafter of tuberculosis. So, very uh, a tragic story, all the way through. Shortly after the episode, uh, a piece of historical fiction, uh, historical fiction in the form of a novel by the author Mishima was. Uh, written and published, hypothesizing about the reasons why the monk would burn down the temple. One of the reasons posed by the author was that the monk had a stutter, that he was ashamed, he had some physical abnormalities of which he was also ashamed, and these uh, drove him to, to commit this act. The ballet uh, takes some lead from the novel, but really follows its own path, and we have some additional characters introduced, and we have, uh, in addition to the monk, two other central characters, a princess and her husband, who is a samurai warrior. Uh, We meet all three very early in the ballet, and then the narrative follows on in episodes. Uh, Not disconnected, but it's not a through line. Uh, There is reference in the notes by Cheryl O'Sola, whom I'm really grateful for. She's at San Francisco Ballet and wrote the notes for the original production and she tailored them for us. I think she gives some great background and I hope you'll have a look at those. Uh, One of the uh, influences for Yuri Posikov was no theater in which narratives are portrayed in very with very stylized movement, very stylized elements, and they are very episodic. So you don't follow right through, but you have one scene and then maybe some a period of time passes and you're dropped into the next scene. And you do connect them, but it does leave open, I think some interpretation and uh some of the uh connecting of the dots is if you will is is left up to us in the audience. And that is think how Raku really is put together. We see that the princess and her uh, husband are in love, they are happily married. He is called uh, away by the other samurais. There are four warriors who are present throughout this ballet. They represent honor, they represent truth. Um, towards the end of the ballet we see them uh, represented by cranes who also have these meanings, among others, uh, in uh, Asian symbolism. The wife is distraught that the husband has left. Uh, We drop into another episode then where we really see the monk's uh, agitation come to the fore. And he, uh, here in this story, he uh, not only has his own sense of shame, perhaps, but is in love with the princess. He uh, is jealous of her relationship and his inability to have that, given his station. Uh, And he is uh, unable to keep himself from that and attacks the princess. And uh, then she is left. She is, uh, and it goes from bad to worse as the story goes on, and it is a true tragedy. The warriors return, uh, her husband is dead, they've brought her his ashes. Uh, Then we move to the episode of the burning of the temple uh, by the monk. The warriors sacrifice themselves to save the princess, but uh, nevertheless, she has lost her husband and uh, she um, uh, takes her own life at at the end of the piece. This all is underscored not only by the music, which I'll talk about. We had a great interview with Shinji Ashima the other night, and it was really enlightening to hear about the different aspects of the score and how they uh, support the story and give uh, some emotional uh, content beyond the dancing that our ears will hear. Yuri Pasikov wanted to use a sort of operatic scale for this piece. He wanted to use not only large-scale set pieces and very evocative costuming by our own Mark Sapone, but he wanted to use projections as well, very forward-thinking with technology. So we have our large set pieces and on them are a number of projections. Some are uh, very tangible. There is imagery of the temple before it was burned, and there are actual actual images images after the temple was burned. There is also um, the passing of time shown by the change of seasons. When the princess is with her husband, we're in spring. Uh, we see cherry blossoms. We hear it in a piano solo that the princess dances to in the music. Uh, when the husband goes away, the leaves fall off the trees as we head into autumn. At the end of the ballet, when the ashes are returned to the princess, at the very end, the snow begins to fall as we move into winter. So, we, our episodes maybe are connected by this passage of time that were shown through the, through the projections. So, uh, hopefully we're starting to get the idea that all of these elements, these theatrical elements, are working together to support the, the narrative here. Uh, the score, I, I'm really fond of the score. I've been hearing it in the studio for many weeks. It was wonderful to meet Shinji Yashima. He's a double bassist in the San Francisco Ballet Orchestra and Opera Orchestra. Yuri Posikov asked him if he would collaborate with him on the score. Uh, Shinji is a composer and had written a number of works, but never a large-scale orchestral work, which really surprised me because it is very accomplished in its orchestration. Uh, he did decide early on that he would not employ traditional Japanese instruments, but he would uh, occasionally try to evoke those sounds using the modern uh, symphony orchestra, so we hear that in instruments like the flute and how the flute is used, how the harp is used, uh, a very uh, wide variety of percussion is used to, uh, to evoke the sounds of Japanese music in a, again, in a stylized way, and I think what what we see in all of the elements, in the costuming, in the projections, in the music, we hear stylized references to Japanese culture. I think that is the intent. He does employ some Buddhist chanting, and we actually have uh, practitioners and monks representing four Zen centers, two here in Seattle, one on Vashon and even San Francisco, Uh, with us to uh, sing for each performance. Shinji explained that the words of the chant include uh, words that translate we feel your suffering and we suffer with you. I think that's just one example of how every aspect of the music as he's composed it supports the story in ways that we may not know but I think somehow intangibly they will impact our our perception of the piece. I think that's just about all I'll say about the piece. You really need, it really needs to be experienced. I wanted to give you an idea of the context around it, some of the intentions, and, and the variety of uh, theatrical elements that are used to put this piece over. Going to see a new cast tonight. Uh, last night was Noelani Pantastico, with Seth Orza as the samurai, Kyle Davis as the monk, and tonight it will be Lindsay Deck as the princess, uh, Carell Cruz, who is her husband in real life, as the samurai and Stephen Locke as the monk. And uh, their first performance tonight. So th- that is Raku. And then we have our second intermission. Uh, Sandy, yeah. Just real quick, are, are the chanters in the pit or in, in the side? The chanters are in the pit, in the orchestra pit. Yeah, I think there's some uh, amplification. So there's a sense that it's coming from the side because the amplification is on either side of the stage. Yeah. And I think there's around, I'm not sure how many there are, 8 to 12 or so of them each. Uh, there's a sort of larger pool that rotates through. So, All right, second intermission, and then Emergence. Emergence by Crystal Pike, third time in the repertory for us. A little bit of a signature piece for us right now. We've also brought it to New York on tour to give it its premiere there at City Center. We're taking it to Paris, also a little Mortal Jump at the beginning of July give those works their Paris premieres. Crystal Pite is a, a favorite uh, choreographer of the dancers. We have just two pieces from her so far. Uh, we have Emergence and then we have Plot Point, which for me was a really fascinating piece of, I think, what I would might maybe call movement theater uh, that we had in November. She always has very unique inspirations for the subject matter of her works. Uh, There are notes courtesy of National Ballet of Canada in the program and some notes by Crystal herself on our website that uh, discuss the uh, development of this ballet emergence. It was made for National Ballet of Canada in Toronto. It was a commission. Crystal has her own company, Kid Pivot, which is a small group of dancers. They were here just recently at the Moore Theatre, dancing Height. But with National Ballet of Canada, she had a large classical ballet company with all the hierarchies of ranks and so forth, And but right away she said, well, just send everyone available to rehearsal. They thought, well, maybe she'd start with two or a trio or something, but no, just send me everybody. And she... Uh, really started in on this genre of creating large-scale works. And she's since made a very large-scale work on the subject of immigration for the Royal Ballet called Flight Pattern. It won an Olivier Award, Laurence Olivier Award, just last week. She's made a piece called The Seasons Canon, set to Max Richter's uh, take on Vivaldi's Four Seasons at Paris Opera Ballet. So she has this genre of large-scale ballets with large-scale companies, and they, they suit us quite well. Uh, as well as something like Plot Point. With Emergence, she had read a book by uh, a popular science writer that was uh, finding connections of all things between the insect world, particularly bees, software, society, history, and so forth. And she was so intrigued by this idea and she thought, can I make a connection between the bees and their world and a classical ballet company and the hierarchies involved in that? And you think, wow, that's probably not usually how a dance piece is put together, but that's pretty typical. And she'll find a way to develop a movement vocabulary and a scenic and tech design to do this. And Anne Dabrowski, who is our ballet master that has worked with Crystal on both of these works, said that uh, when Crystal develops a piece, she does all the tech aspects first. The scenic design, the lighting, all of that gets set. She and her team work on that. And I think that's unusual too. I think usually there are ideas and artists are commissioned, but really the choreography becomes that central piece. But Crystal first develops this framework, and once her framework is set, then she starts on the movement that will fill that framework. I also found that just a unique, unique way of working. Uh, Even how the cast is listed here, this is just one uh, non-hierarchical list of our dancers. They're just in alphabetical order. They're not separated by rank. They're not separated by gender. And it's nice for me as the person who makes these inserts because I can just type these names in alphabetical order. But within this community of dancers that we're presented with, she has episodes within the ballet, and she's given them titles that refer to 19th century ballet uh, dance titles. There's a grand pas, or the grand, the big dance, and that's danced by two dancers. You have a grand pas and the nutcracker for the Sugar Plum fairy and her cavalier, and in sleeping beauty for princess Aurora and uh, her prince, and we have one in emergence too, it's just not listed as such. There's a trio that we would call a pas de trois, and a quartet, which would be a pas de cotte. She has a prologue, it's a, it's a, the prologue is a fascinating duet about a, one of these uh, members of this community who is being born, and she has uh, someone who is with her to to assist her, to make sure that all goes well, if you will, and that she gets her legs under her, quite literally. And that is how the ballet starts. And then we're introduced to the rest of the community. And uh, this idea of hive mentality is very explicitly Uh, shown in the way that the dancers move in groups on stage, how they uh, react to each other, how there are boundaries, and if the boundaries are crossed, if the rules are broken, we can see what the reactions are from the rest of the group. Uh, And then finally at the end, various groups, there are about six of them, three groups of men, three groups of women coming together and working in a very methodical, almost militaristic way. Uh, Crystal's collaborated with the composer Owen Belton who's written an electronic score which has musical elements but also extra musical elements. There's sounds of marching, Uh, there's uh, string instruments that are used at least to my ear in such a way to represent what makes me think of the insect world and... uh, some So, we have some literal and non literal sound references as well as visual references uh in the movement in the uh, in the costuming the dancers initially come out with masks that have definite bug-like feel to them. They, sh- they soon thereafter come off in the scenic design by Jay Gower Taylor and uh, the wonderful lighting as well. So again, a very full theatrical work. I can see Crystal Pike directing films. I just hope we can keep her in ballet. I'm not sure if that's possible because she's very much a director type and really sees everything and, and has an idea about how to improve every, every little bit. Very inspiring. So those are our three works tonight. Again, very diverse works, but all of them, I think, making full use of what the theater has to offer. Is there anything that I could answer at this point? Yes. Can you tell us um, who we'll be seeing in emergence in some of those, like the, the, kind of the Yes, I think that I can. Boy, am I going to get this right. I think that in the Grand Pa, we are going to see Laura Tisserand Miles Pertle tonight. I think that's right, because I'm looking at the names that are on here. In the prologue, uh, Rachel Foster with uh, Joshua Grant. I think in the quartet is one woman uh, who is different from all the others. She's wearing pants and sort of a uh, a nude color top, and her hair is down. It's not up like the rest of the women. There's a very free aspect to uh, how she looks and how she moves with her hair down, and that will be Leah Merchant tonight. And uh, the quartets for one woman and three men. It's it's a it's a beautiful and uh, it's a beautiful section that has a different feel in the score than any of the others. There's a a stillness, a peacefulness to it, uh, and. Uh, it's a wonderful respite from the sort of drive of the rest of the piece. So those are some of the sections. Thank you. Anybody else with a question? Uh, yes, please, Jody. I have kind of a follow up. So when we first did Emergence, I found it confusing because sometimes the same gal in the prologue was the same dance, gal dancer in the quartet. Mm-hmm. So I thought in the quartet, oh, she's all grown up now. But then sometimes it's a different gal like tonight not connected. But, you know, I think even this year, sometimes the same doing both parts. So, so, the comment was that sometimes the same dancers in the prologue uh, also does the quartet. And, and that has been true in the past. Rachel Foster has done both of them. It doesn't happen, it hasn't happened this weekend. Um, but I, do, I don't believe there's a relationship there. I think it's simply a, a choice of casting. Um, also, you, if you're in the prologue, the prologue woman wears a sort of... Uh, it's almost like a sack dress without arms, if you will. It's quite loose-fitting, but then it's sprayed with water, so it sticks to her skin. It's a very unusual look. I think it has to do with... it's essentially a birth scene. But that dancer then is all wet, and uh, the first thing she can be ready for would be the quartet to be changed and in the next so there's a practicality to to that so uh, but two different dancers tonight so it's a lot of work if it's the same dancer for that dancer so yes please Question about Emergence on tour. Um, In New York, I think it was received really well, from what I remember. We were on the city center stage. That's in Midtown Manhattan. It was the home of New York City Ballet from 1948 to 1964. It's a a fairly small stage. So ideally, Emergence would be on a larger stage, but that was the the stage we had, and it was the tour that we had that, with the repertory we had available, uh, and I think it went over well. Paris has not seen Emergence, although they've seen Seasons Canon, which is another of her larger works. Um, it's a, Crystal says that's a popular work, and I think by that she means it's, it's easy on the eyes and it's easy on the ears, and uh, because it's the Max Richter take on uh, Vivaldi's Four Seasons, which is both of which are quite popular. Uh, Emergence has a l- more edge to it, but it is in the same vein and it has many of the same movement aspects uh, in say in the quartet scene and so forth so so we're hoping that we'll uh, carry the popularity of you of Seasons can Canon. Have put out the we have put out the reviews i 'll ask Gary our PR guy, if our reviews will go online. And occasionally, the uh, press in Seattle will provide a summary of the tour reviews. So, we're going to Paris to a festival called Les Eté de la Danse. It's been a festival that's been around for about 15 years, and they often bring over American companies to perform. It's a two-week festival this time. First week is a Robbins Festival that involves a number of companies. Uh, we're there at Miami City Ballet, Joffrey Ballet, New York City Ballet, and Perm Opera Ballet Theatre from Russia, it's kind of the wild card company, not an American company. And then the second week will be just Pacific Northwest Ballet alternating in two programs of four ballets each. So we'll have those eight ballets, plus we're bringing, for the Robbins Festival, Opus 19, The Dreamer, set to the Prokofiev Violin Concerto that we did last year. And I wanted to say that we'll have uh, three open rehearsals, open to the public, They're ticketed uh, next door in the Phelps Center in June on the 19th, 20th, and 21st. I listed them on the back of the insert. So if you'd like to come and see these ballets rehearsed, we essentially do run-throughs of them in the studio. Uh, You can come and see those right before we go to Paris. We'll have a handout that talks about the tour and says what we're doing. And if you come to the last one on the 21st, you can toast the company with champagne. Uh, I also wanted to talk, oh, yeah, go ahead, Jim. You'll be there. The stage in Paris is the same size. In fact, the theater we're at, it's a new theater. It's on an island in the Seine in the southwest part of Paris. Uh, It has a very large stage that can be uh, sort of made into any size you need. So we can have a stage that matches what we're used to, which is very handy, because time's always short on tour. Stage time's very short. It's usually a dress rehearsal in the afternoon and a show at night. So you really need to have your ducks in a row and be ready. So the fact that the stage is the same size means transferring ballets from here to there will be much simpler. What we call spacing will go much faster. We don't have to make adjustments. So we are happy about that. Yes, Sandy. Is there any way to make money on tour or is just covering expenses? Anymore? Is there a way to make money on tour? There probably is a way to make money on tour. Every tour is different. Every presenter that presents us will provide something different. Uh, a presenter's fee may be intended to cover airfare, or the presenter may cover airfare and offer a fee. Every, and then there's hotel, there's ground transport, there's shoes, there's shipping. We're about to ship our containers through the Panama Canal and up to Paris, and they leave in about two weeks. So generally, we don't make money on tour. We usually have to solicit some funding, and you know, for good stewardship of those funds, we want to be at a break-even situation, uh, unless there's a, specified intent to, to build up a sort of uh, fund that would go toward the next tour. So, but touring offers many other many other important uh, things. It offers uh, visibility for the company and visibility for the dancers, additional performances, the ability for audiences and other places to see us. Uh, It encourages dancers to audition for our company because they know we're a touring company and that we perform repertory on international stages. Uh, So it certainly raises the prestige of the company. Uh, We hope that it uh, builds some hometown pride when we're on the road. And uh, so there are those sort of intangibles that become tangible things. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. We haven't done an international tour with the whole company since 2002. So it's been quite some time. Everyone's very excited to go. So, yeah, we'll keep you all posted. Last, th- one more question and then real quick about Robbins. yes. Yes, this is perfect. I'm looking forward to the Jerome Robbins Festival. (laughs) And I really am. Jerome Robbins was born in 1918 and worldwide he's being celebrated for his Broadway shows and for his ballets and we're presenting in our first repertory a Jerome Robbins Festival that has two different programs. So if you subscribe, if you subscribe, you've seen that you're assigned to whichever program is on your regular show day. But I did want to encourage people and I'm not doing marketing speak here. To come to that other program, I think there's a good discount, but that way you see all of the ballets, all seven of the ballets that will present. Uh, four of them have scores by Chopin, which was obviously a favorite for being of robin supporting the ballet. In addition to the festival, we're gonna have some extra events, hopefully here right in this venue, uh, showing the Robins documentary that was made several years ago now for the American Masters Program. It is a terrific documentary. And if you feel like you don't know much about Jerome Robbins or you know West Side Story or you've seen Fiddler on the Roof or or one of the musicals, you can come and really get I think, a very entertaining and fair, accurate assessment of Robbins and who he was. There's a lot of great interview footage by collaborators and Robbins himself. We're going to show that. We're going to have a panel of artists who worked with Robbins and and representing several generations also during that week. So as soon as these are set in stone, which I'm working very hard at, we will get the word out and these will be offered to, Space is limited, so we will probably offered first to people who have tickets to both shows, so incentive. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, I really encourage you to do that. This is a, a new format for us, and I think there's no better time to do it than, than to honor Robbins, who is someone that Peter Bull worked with closely and uh, who, who is a, a unique choreographer. So Looking forward to that, among other things. But I've kept us four minutes late and I think we should go. So I'm very glad you're here tonight for this what really is a momentous program. I look forward to hearing from you about it. Thank you so much.